Well, it is great to be back up here with you in this capacity to bring God's word to you. As most of you know, the elders very kindly give me a writing sabbatical, a writing leave every summer, and uh, I'm always very thankful for those, and always thankful when they come to an end so that I can get back to the work that I really love, the work uh, predominantly right here. Uh, It's now been over 18 years that I've been doing this, getting up on a Sunday and trying to bring uh, God's word to bear on this church. And, uh, and I can say I, I'm tickled about the privilege of that more now than I was even year one or day one or any other time, I think. So I'm thankful and uh, eager to get after it this morning. So turn with me to Luke chapter 13 in your Bibles. Luke 13, we were there last week. Chase has been leading us so well in recent weeks in a study of the parables in Luke. And by the way, uh, come after Labor Day, we'll begin a study in the book of Genesis. Uh, So you might want to be reading that in anticipation of it. Uh, But before that, we have some, some more parables in Luke to cover. And in Luke 13, we have two very short parables in verses 18 to 21. And they are preceded by a healing story in verses 10 to 17. And so we'll start with verse 10 in Luke chapter 13. Read on with me. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches." And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was leavened. A healing story followed by two parables. Let me take a minute to show you that this material all goes together and that that matters. 
as we've been studying parables in Luke, we've seen more than once that a parable is sometimes connected to a preceding scene, a dialogue that takes place in Luke's narrative. Chase has been pointing this out to us, and we saw it last week. Often a parable doesn't just fly in out of nowhere, but it follows a discussion. It's part of the same scene. In other words, there's often a reason for Jesus giving this parable to these people at this time. Of course, there's always a reason for anything and everything Jesus does, but often there's a reason in the story. Something has occasioned it. So notice in verse 19... At least in most translations, the word therefore. He said, therefore. Luke, the narrator, is telling us that it is because of what just happened, the healing of the woman at the synagogue, that Jesus told these two short parables. There's no scene break between verses 17 and 18, even though most English Bibles put a heading there. Those headings there are not inspired. They're not written by the biblical authors. They're sometimes very helpful in breaking big chunks of God's word into sections. And sometimes they can actually be misleading. Notice the actual text doesn't say here like we sometimes find elsewhere in Luke. Something like, now once when Jesus was teaching or... Now, sometime after this, that kind of language suggests a new scene. That language is not in verse 18, and instead, Luke supplies that important word, therefore, to make sure we tie these together. And all of that means what, you ask? What's the point? Why belabor it? Well, it means that the parables, again, of verse 18 to 21, in some way, explain what just happened in the healing of the woman. And how does Jesus introduce these parables? Did you notice? It's the same way each time. Verse 18 and verse 20, what is the kingdom of God like? And then he tells a parable. Verse 20, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? And then he tells a parable. They're about the kingdom, which means then that the healing of the woman is apparently also about the kingdom of God, even though the word kingdom isn't used in verses 10 to 17. Jesus tells us what was happening there. The kingdom of God was showing up. The kingdom of God is exemplified in the healing of the woman, and then the kingdom of God is illustrated by Jesus in two parables. That's our outline. So first, the kingdom exemplified in healing. One day when Jesus was teaching in a synagogue on the Sabbath, as was his custom, as Luke tells us elsewhere, this time specifically we're introduced to a woman who was there. Verse 11, Luke tells us, Behold, behold, there was a woman there. And she had been disabled for the past 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. Literally, in the original, it's she couldn't straighten herself at all. Now, the medically minded 
among us might wonder what the technical medical diagnosis might be for this woman's condition. And you're not alone. Even the Bible scholars uh, offer different hypotheses in their commentaries. But that's a detour I don't wish to take. It's obvious enough, I think, that she was severely disabled. It was a back issue, and she had this problem for many years. Neither should we get too bogged down with this apparent relationship between her physical disability and demonic activity. It's there. We've got to note it. Luke says that she had a disabling spirit, verse 11, and then Jesus himself says in verse 16 that she's a woman whom Satan bound for 18 years, and her healing was Jesus freeing her. Now, if you're a a skeptic to the Bible, you're not yet a Christian, you might be tempted to dismiss this spiritualizing of the physical realm. You might be tempted to dismiss this as a crude attempt at diagnosing a, a merely physical ailment. But keep in mind that Luke, the author, was a physician by trade. And not a quack, not a, not a medicine man or something, not a witch doctor. He was a physician. And he says that this woman had a spirit. And more importantly, Jesus said it. And Jesus knew exactly what was going on with this woman, body and soul. He knows perfectly what's going on with her and with you and me, physically and spiritually. And so if Jesus says that this particular disability was caused by Satan, we should believe it. He would know. But neither is that to say that every disability is directly tied to Satan. That would be a mistake. In fact, if you find the other healing stories in Luke, very few, if any other than this one, connect the physical with Satan binding. So it would be cynical on the one hand to think that Jesus can't give an accurate diagnosis of both the physical and the spiritual, but it would also be dangerous and cruel on the other hand to take this one example in Luke 13 and extrapolate from that that every disease anyone has anywhere at any time is connected and attributed to Satan. I just rubs all kinds of other parts of the Bible in the wrong direction. So we've considered a medical angle. She was in a lot of pain, no doubt, had a severe, prolonged, and visible disability. There's the spiritual angle that in this case, Satan was the cause because Jesus says so. But, but Luke would also have us, I think, appreciate the social and relational dynamic that would go on with this woman's condition. Remember, Luke tells us to behold when he introduces her to us. He tells us, verse 12, that Jesus saw her and called her over. 
The regular attenders of the synagogue were all, I'm sure, quite used to not staring at this woman who was always folded in half. Maybe they'd even got good at pretending not to see her. Maybe they have even gotten good at not seeing her. I've heard from some disabled people that that's one of the hardest parts of disability is feeling unseen. People don't know how to respond, and so they don't. They look the other way. But Luke wants us to see this woman. He wants us to see her disability. He wants us to see what Jesus sees. He wants us to see her as Jesus sees her. He wants us to be moved to compassion as Jesus was. For 18 years, this woman was folded in half and could not straighten up. She couldn't move like most of us can, like most of us take for granted. She couldn't look people in the eye, at least the way you and I do. She couldn't converse with them in the same way that you and I often do and take for granted. But then one day, Jesus came to church and he saw her and he called to her. He called her over to himself. He spoke to her. He touched her. It says he laid his hands on her. He healed her. In verse 13, Luke says, and immediately she was made straight. Luke loves that word immediately after healings. Jesus heals them immediately. And she glorified God. Rightly so. She didn't merely thank Jesus. She knew where that power came from. God. And just when you think that this story is nearly coming to an end, just when you think that that would be a nice, neat bow at the end of this story, and now maybe we could enter into Jesus' parables. No, the ruler of the synagogue, verse 14, was indignant because Jesus healed on the Sabbath. It says, he said to the people. Notice that, he said to the people. Not to Jesus, who obviously he was directing his outrage towards, but he didn't have enough guts to say it to Jesus. He said to the people, there are six days to work, and the seventh day is supposed to be a day of rest from your work. And the seventh day, therefore, there shouldn't be any healing, he says. He says, if you need healing... Take care of that business on one of the other six days, not the seventh day, the Sabbath. Never mind that this ruler himself can't do any healing. He doesn't have that power. If the woman comes back on Tuesday and Jesus isn't there, she's not healed. He's there. He's the healer. 
And never mind that the healing is no work at all for Jesus. <laughs> he, he put his hands on her. That's not work. He spoke. That's not work for him. And never mind the hypocrisy of this man's protest, as Jesus points out. Jesus points out that even their rabbinic tradition, the tradition of the rabbis, allowed for acts of mercy on the day of rest, the Sabbath. Jesus didn't even need to point out that the man's thinking was outside the Bible, outside Mosaic law. Jesus is citing the rabbinic tradition that's in the Mishnah. So he's pointing out that this guy and his take on things is inconsistent with rabbinic tradition and inconsistent with his own practice. You see, one's ox or donkey, they were allowed to be given drink on the Sabbath even while that beast of burden was to be resting on the seventh day, they still had to drink. And so you had to get your cattle or your ox or your donkey water. And so they did. And so how much more this woman? It's an argument from the lesser to the greater if you know how to care for the basic physical needs of your donkey, Sabbath or not, how much more this human being made in God's image, how much more this sister in the faith, this daughter of Abraham, how much more this one who has been tormented by Satan for 18 years. Do you see how crazy stupid this man's perspective was? Do you see how spiritually slow and backwards his thinking was? Do you see how inhumane his perspective was? Here is a man so committed to his man-made rules of, religious, uh, of religion that he can't see that Israel's long-awaited Messiah had come to church that day and was performing the very deeds that the prophet Isaiah said would accompany Messiah's ministry. Luke established this point for us back a long time ago in Luke 4. Turn back there, Luke 4. You're probably familiar with this story. A different time where Jesus was in the synagogue. And here, he reads from Isaiah 61. Verse 16 of Luke 4. As was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. This is Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
And he rolled up the scroll, and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That one Isaiah spoke of, it's me. I'm here. I'm doing it. Now, the ruler of the synagogue in Luke 13 may not have known of what happened in Luke 4, but he surely knew of Isaiah 61. And it was happening right before his eyes. And all he could think to do was to protest over a petty technicality that wasn't even a technicality. This man is a classic case of the fig tree that we saw last week, chapter 13, verses 6 to 9. This is a man who perceives nothing. He bears no fruit, and his tree is soon about to be cut down. Thankfully, not everyone there at the synagogue that day saw things his way. And some did. It says, verse 17, they were put to shame. They had nothing left to say after Jesus had put them into a theological checkmate. But others rejoiced. You see that? They rejoiced, verse 17, at all the glorious things that were done by Jesus. A twofold reaction to this Jesus and his healing. That's the way it goes with this Jesus. There is no Switzerland with him. There is no neutrality with Jesus. It's either shame and unbelief, or it is belief and joy and giving glory to God. And what is it with you? How goes it with you? Here is Jesus presented before you in the pages of Scripture. And I wonder, will you distract yourself with some petty detail or objection in the story and overlook God's Son? Overlook His healing hand? Will you hear him call you and you say, ah, but what about fill in the blank? I don't know. It's the wrong day. Will you maintain some arbitrary man-made standard of what you think Jesus should be just so that you can go on ignoring him a little longer? Well, that is hypocrisy. That's what this man was guilty of. Or, or, or will you, like, like the woman, hear his call? Come to him with your brokenness. Be restored, straightened up. And will you glorify God and rejoice? You see, the healing stories of the gospel accounts serve several functions, several purposes. 
They show Jesus' heart of compassion for the hurting and the broken. We see that when, you know, one of the gospel writers says Jesus was moved to compassion and he healed. The gospel stories, the healing stories rather in the gospels, are proof that the time had come that the king had come, Messiah had come, and it was him, Jesus. The healing stories are, are also a window into Jesus reversing the, the effects of the curse. He's defeating Satan. They're also a glimpse of what's to fully come for all who believe in the new heaven and new earth when Jesus returns. The healing stories do all that. And they are also a living parable, if I can call it that. A flesh and blood parable of what we all need, spiritually speaking. The kind of people that Jesus heals, the kind of ailments that Jesus fixes in the gospel accounts are also metaphors in the Bible, for where we all are, spiritually speaking. The blind, the deaf, the lame, the dead. That's us. Even if you don't have an ache in your body. That's what we are spiritually. We don't see. We don't hear. We can't get up. We're dead in our sins. So you don't have to have an 18-year severe disability to relate to this woman. And you don't have to have Jesus heal your 18-year physical disability to relate to this woman. We're all bent and broken on the inside. And that, for all of us, is our biggest problem. It's our biggest problem. We're all weighed down, folded in half. And Jesus seeks out people who feel like that. Jesus seeks out those who know they're bent and broken. He seeks out the lowly, not the lofty, not hypocrites. So will you today, if you haven't before, come to this Jesus, this compassionate Savior, this powerful healer, will you come to him? He knows your hurt. He knows your brokenness. He knows your sin. He knows your rebellion. He knows your guilt. And he cares. And he calls you to himself, and he has the power to restore. He has the power to restore you on the inside because he died. In John 12, Jesus says that unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it doesn't bear any fruit. It's just a seed. It's just left alone. But if the seed falls into the ground and dies, it produces much fruit. That was a mini parable. 
for his death upon the cross. He is the seed that would die, go into the ground, and come up on the third day and bring with him all who would ever believe in him. I pray you'd believe today. To believe and to receive his mercy like this is to, it's to enter his kingdom. That's what we're talking about, right? His kingdom is exemplified in this story. The kingdom is exemplified by his compassion and care and restoration and his people's joy and worship. That's why Jesus illustrated the kingdom next. The kingdom illustrated in two parables. Remember, he said, therefore, verse 18, what's the kingdom like? Verse 20, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? Now, what is the kingdom of God? Let me be more explicit than I have been before we examine the parables about the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is the realm of God's rule in and through Jesus Christ specifically. One day, in the end, that kingdom will be made visible. It will be undeniable. It will be universal. A new heaven and a new earth. Heaven and earth becoming one. That's one day. For now, it is a spiritual realm in which Christ rules over and is worshipped by those who believe in him and follow him. And as more and more people believe in Jesus and follow him, the kingdom grows. It expands. The kingdom comes even further. It has come and it is coming. As more and more people follow Jesus and follow him more sincerely and more intimately and more faithfully, well, there is more and more of his kingdom represented on earth. We see more and more of his kingdom in this world. And that's why Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Kingdom has come, it is coming, it will come, even when it seems hidden and small and insignificant. Jesus says it's like a seed which grows. Verse 19, the kingdom of God is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. The kingdom of God starts small and seemingly insignificant. Its growth is at times hidden Sometimes it's literally underground. But the end is sure, and the end will be 
glorious. The seed is becoming a tree. And the tree of God's kingdom now, and increasingly so, provides shade and shelter for its inhabitants, not least this bent and broken woman who finds refuge in Jesus' nest. Now that language of a tree providing nests in its branches, that, that language comes from Ezekiel 17. Ezekiel 17, verse 22, God will plant a tree on a high and lofty mountain that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under this tree will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. That's Ezekiel 17. In Ezekiel 17, it's a global tree, isn't it? Do you hear that emphasis on every kind of bird, every sort of bird will dwell under its branches? Well, isn't that how Luke and the other gospel accounts for that matter? Isn't that how they end? We call it the Great Commission, Luke's version of it. Jesus says, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to all nations. Go get the lost birdies and bring them into the nest. This is happening. This will happen. Didn't John in Revelation foresee one day in heaven a multitude which no man can number from every, every tribe and language and people and nation? The gospel eventually will hit every culture and language in this world. In Matthew 24, Jesus said, the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to the nations, and then the end will come. It will come, and the gospel will be preached in the whole world. Now, on the one hand, that's our responsibility as Christians, right? The Great Commission was given to us, not even angels. It's amazing that God put us in charge of this, but he did. We are the ones who are the means by which, humanly speaking, at least verbally with the gospel, the means by which others come into the safety of the nest of Jesus Christ. On the one hand, this is our responsibility as his current kingdom citizens to take the gospel to the world. On the other hand, God is doing this. He's doing it with or without you. He doesn't need you or me. He's just doing it. And the success 
of his kingdom building is not riding on us. It's not riding on Ryan Kelly. It's not riding on this sermon. It's not riding on this fallen pastor. It's riding on Jesus. He's the farmer. It's his garden. It's his tree. We are, we are simply the happy birdies who get to reside under his gracious shade. Just feel that. You bring nothing to the table. He does it all. When Martin Luther was asked, how did you accomplish the Reformation? He said, all I know is Philip and I were drinking beer in Wittenberg and the word did it all. So on the one hand, back to this, get after it. It's not done. Not everyone's in. There are people for whom Jesus bled and died that have not yet heard the gospel. Get after it. On the other hand, rest assured that he will do it. He will have his way. Jesus will build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It doesn't matter what it looks like. It doesn't matter how we perceive it's going. When Christ's kingdom seems small to us, insignificant, hidden, well, we, we just don't assess what's going on as the world does. We don't use their metrics. I'll come back to that in just a bit, but let's get to this second parable because they go together. They basically say the same thing two different ways. It's like a seed which grows, verse 19. It's like leaven which spreads it's like, a leaven that, it's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Now, sometimes in the Bible, leaven is a symbol for sin, but it's not here. No, here, leaven is good. It mirrors the parable of the seed, which becomes a tree of salvation. So the point of the parable of the leaven, like the parable of the seed and the tree is that the kingdom of God starts small, it's seemingly insignificant. It's unremarkable. And yet, it grows, it spreads. Like, like leaven, like yeast, it permeates. You don't always see it happening, but that doesn't mean it's not happening. It is happening. It will happen. It's the very nature of leaven. It's what leaven does. A little leaven leavens the whole lump, Paul says. He's talking about sin there, but the same is true here. A little leaven leavens three measures of flour, Jesus said, which is a lot. Three measures of flour is almost five gallons, or about 50 pounds. And that's a flour, not dough, flour. I, I don't know, someone tell me later on how much bread that makes. That's lots of loaves. 
It starts out small, seemingly insignificant, but behind the scenes, in the dough, it grows and it spreads. It's the very nature of Christ's kingdom. It's just like that. Like the way seeds go on the ground and subtly grow, but inevitably grow, just like, just like this yeast goes into dough and it fills the whole dough, but it's small at first. This is the nature of the kingdom. It's always been that way. Just, just start thinking of Bible stories in the New Testament especially. Think of Jesus' birth, the arrival of the king, born in little old Bethlehem, born in a manger, worshipped by shepherds. This is the arrival of the long-awaited king? Yeah, yeah, the, the, the fingerprints are everywhere. This is in the DNA of his ways. Seems small, seems insignificant. Sometimes it's hidden, tucked away, and something big is actually happening. You think of Jesus' life and when he starts teaching, and, and what did people say? Some people marveled that he taught with such authority, but, but many others said, isn't this just Joseph's son? Is, is this the carpenter? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Think of the scene at the cross. The religious leaders crucified him. The crowd mocked him. The disciples, uh, apart from a handful of women, they all split. Peter denied him. You think of the book of Acts. Well, there are little scenes where there's great big growth, like at Pentecost in Acts 2. Thousands get saved from one sermon. It can go that way sometimes. And at other times, it's just steady growth. The gospel just keeps going, and some believe, but a lot of the city opposes it. The apostle Paul can preach the gospel. A few believe he's stoned. They think he's dead. They drag him out of the city. He comes to takes the gospel to the next city. On and on it goes. You think of Paul's final days. Remember 2 Timothy 4? Probably the last thing we have from him in our Bibles. He says, no one stood with me at my defense. They've all deserted me. It doesn't look like it's going very well. And then we remember back in Zechariah 4, don't despise the days of small beginnings. Don't despise the days of small beginnings. It's the very nature of Christ's kingdom to go like that. It doesn't come all at once. And that was a common misconception among Jews in Jesus' day. They thought Messiah would come and boom, Rome obliterated. All the good, all the peaceful days restored, and then some. 
And Jesus is pointing out here in these parables, it doesn't all come at once. It comes rather slowly. And so we, as his under-seeders, he's the true farmer, but as his representatives who are entrusted with this gospel, we've just got to keep seeding. And we don't know exactly when and where and how much It'll spring forth. Paul told Timothy in that last chapter of Paul's life, 2 Timothy 4, to preach the word in season and out of season. When it seems like it's working and when it seems like it's not, you just keep going. Oh, how pastors and missionaries need these parables especially because it's so easy to assess health and growth with worldly metrics. I can't tell you how many Sundays I've stood in this spot and preached a sermon and afterwards just thought, what was the point? What, I mean, did it do anything? It, could, if, could we just have stuffed animals out there in the seats and the same thing would have happened? <laughs> I wouldn't have felt any stupider that's what I think sometimes. Did anything happen? Was that worth the time for anyone? I, I can't tell you how often in the last year I've dealt with discouragement from seeing Christ's people divided and angry and divisive and distracted by so many stupid things. So many things that are not eternal. So many things that are not a part of Christ's kingdom. Not that some of the things don't matter at all. I mean, but, but the, the fact that some of us have gotten so mad about masks in an election, in, in your take, on racial issues. That Christ's body has chopped itself up a thousand times over on these issues. The kingdom, folks, is sure. The kingdom must be our attention. I need reminding today that the symbols of Christ's kingdom are seeds and lumps of leaven. I, I dare you to get that tattooed for your next Christian tattoo. Just go ahead and get, get a little seed in a lump of le le leaven. No, we like strength. Strength's coming. Maybe not yet. The very nature of seed growth and leaven spreading is that so much of its work by nature goes unnoticed. It's imperceptible. Phil Riken, president of Wheaton College, put it so well, commenting on this passage. He says, little by little, the kingdom is growing. 
It grows behind closed doors when a sinner kneels secretly in prayer to receive Jesus as Savior and Lord. It grows in the heart when a little boy or girl promises to live for Jesus no matter what. It grows in the home when by faith a husband takes spiritual responsibility for his household and a wife respects her husband. It grows behind bars when prisoners hear the gospel. It grows on the streets of the city when Christians show quiet mercy to people that society has forgotten. It grows in all the lost places of the world where missionaries live out their faith in daily obedience to Christ. The real work of the kingdom of God is not always obvious, but sometimes invisible and almost imperceptible like the yeast hidden in a loaf of bread. And the spread of that yeast in the bread of the kingdom of God is sure. It's what leaven does. It's what seeds do. So enter in. Enter in. If you haven't entered in, enter in today. Do not delay. Sit down under the shade that is only available to you in Jesus, the one who knows you, the one who knows how bent and broken your life is. Come to him with it. Be healed and restored by him. He, he, he offers it freely to the lowly, not, not the lofty, but to the lowly, those who know they need it. And they join with each other in the safe nest of God that he is building and building and building and adding to and adding to and also pruning as they rejoice and give glory to God. Christian, pray that his kingdom would keep coming and know that that implies some responsibility on your end too. Your kingdom come, your will be done. So seek his kingdom and invest your energies and affections in this kingdom which can't be shaken. And don't be moved by the shaky kingdoms of this world, powerful and big as they sometimes seem. They're going down. Jesus' kingdom is sure and will be forever. Amen. Oh Lord, we thank you. As the writer of Hebrews tells us, we should be grateful for a kingdom which cannot be shaken. We thank you for a kingdom which cannot be shaken. We thank you for a king who is this strong, this sure, and yet this personal and compassionate. We thank you for your kingdom, Lord Jesus. May your kingdom come more in our lives and in this world until you come again. Amen.